hope that uh, you will pray for one another and continue to pray for the Grams during this week. Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I hope you uh, would turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. We're in the last portion of Revelation chapter 1. And uh, if you look in your bulletin, you're going to see we start a new series next week on the five solas of the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And so leading into world outreach, we're going to kind of review some of the great uh, doctrines, the solas of the Reformation, and we'll find out what those are next week. But today, I want you to think, I want you to think about this question. What would happen if Jesus came to church? What would happen if Jesus came to church today? Okay, what, 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 what would happen? We should always be praying, right? We should always be praying, God, reveal yourself to us this morning. I mean, that's something that I pray for, I ask, I hope you pray something along those lines. Lord, show yourself great among us. But what would happen if God literally answered that prayer and showed up physically? All right? What would that be like? Well, if he literally answered that prayer, we know what he would look like because we've seen it here in Revelation chapter 1. The answer is right there in verse 13 of chapter 1. I turned and I saw, and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man clothed in a robe reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like wool. That's his holiness, like snow. And his eyes were like a flame, a fire, a penetrating gaze into our hearts and our sin. His feet were like burnished bronze when it had been made to glow in a furnace showing the judgment that he has went through for sin, but also the judgment that he'll bring to sin. His voice was like the sound of many waters accomplishing that which he speaks. And in his right hand, he held seven stars, the the pastors of local churches. And out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in his strength. Man, this is the awesome glory of Jesus. And we did our best last week to kind of explain what that would be like. But you can't outline Jesus. You can't package Jesus. You just see him in his glory. And if and listen, if those words just sit on the page, then we need the Holy Spirit to apply that to our lives. But how should you respond to this? How should you respond to this is who Jesus really is? And that's really the ultimate point of this whole chapter. It's to get us prepared for the physical revelation of Jesus Christ, the big reveal of the second coming. But how would you respond to him? I mean, if he walked in and he looked like that, or he just suddenly appeared and looked like that, would you keep singing? Would we, would we just do church as usual? Would we just kind of sit and go, oh, there's Jesus, that's cool, I hope he makes himself at home? Would we invite him to sit next to us, share your Bible with him? I mean, you know, what would you do if Jesus came? Or, or would you respond the way John did in verses 17 through 20? I would put forth to you that this is the proper response when we've really seen Jesus for who he really is. The proper response is in verses 17 through 20. So let's read that together. You follow along in your Bibles and let's see. When I saw him, 
I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead and behold, look, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and of Hades. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Wow. What a response. That should be our response. Now, look at those verses, 17 through 20. They kind of have a divine pattern. Throughout the Bible, when God reveals himself in all his glory, there's always this kind of pattern that, one, we see God's position in all his holiness. And then we see our own condition for what it really is, sinful, hopeless, fearful. And then Christ makes a provision and mediates for us between a holy God and our sin. And then God commissions us once we're clean and forgiven and right with Him. And then there comes that brokenness of a decision of what are we going to do. So this is kind of divine pattern. If you look at Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, if you look at Ezekiel, whenever God reveals Himself in this manner, this is kind of the pattern. And why is that always the pattern. Well, spiritual preppers need to renew their passion. They need to renew their passion until Christ comes again. And here's the reality. Only when we see Christ for who he really is, do we see ourselves for who we really are. And that's the idea. Only when we see Christ for who he really is, Do we see ourselves? And when we see ourselves and we see Christ, then we're going to respond. And this is the response. So I want you to see this morning four responses. Four responses of a heart that truly has seen Jesus for who he really is. And I just want you to examine your own heart. Don't think about other people. Think about your own heart and your own response to the living Lord. And let's look at it. So let's take a look. A changed perception of Jesus. That's what we had last week. A changed perception of Jesus results first and foremost in a repentant heart. A repenting heart. Look at what he says. I mean, this is a physical picture of repentance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Okay? Jesus... When you really see Jesus for who he is, he's not our buddy. Okay, we don't high-five him. We don't uh, just, hey, let's just hang out. Let's go have some coffee. And I'll tell you my problems. You fix them, and I'll, I'll give you credit for it. That's the way a lot of people relationship with Jesus is. Or at least they think it is. But when you see him for who he really is. Now, notice, when you look at the... That's a short little phrase. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. But there's at least five things. It tells us what John did. He fell. It tells us where he did it, at Jesus' feet. It tells tells us how he did it, like a dead man. It tells us when he did it, when I saw him. And it it tells us why he did it, because I saw him. Wow. All those external actions 
reveal a repentant heart on the inside. So let me divide that up. Let me break that down and show you three very practical truths of a repentant heart. First of all, in light of His holiness, in light of His holiness, a repentant heart will acknowledge your sinfulness. Acknowledge your sinfulness. I fell at His feet. Now, notice what He did and where He did it. He falls in humble submission. Here's the Lord with this long robe, this crown of holiness. And he's just like, look, you know what? I, I can't negotiate here. I don't, we're, I'm not your equal. I fall at your feet. But more than that, it's that he fell at these feet, at the fiery feet of his judgment. Remember, those are burning feet of bronze. Wow. What's that telling us? John is saying to Jesus, Remember those feet, you know, we said those boots are made for walking and they're going to walk all over me. Well, these feet are made for walking and judging and they're going to judge all sin. And basically John's saying this, look, walk on me, judge me, because you know what? You're holy and I'm not. Judge me because I'm worthy of judgment. I, I, I have nothing to offer you. I have nothing to negotiate with you. I have nothing to say to you in my defense. I am just at the mercy of your ju- judgment. And why is that? Because of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen what? Short. And so how, fall, how far have we fallen short? Down, down, down to his feet. Now, I know Aubrey's here, and she's a Royals fan still, right? Try and true, they haven't, those Texans haven't warped you or anything, right? I know what it's like. I lived there for a while. They're, they grow on you, right? But used to be at the Royals games, right? Remember how low can you go? Remember that? It was like the, the thing, and they, I don't know, they'd view you, and how low can you go? And some people go lower than others, right? And the older you get, the less low you can go. But here's the bottom line. When you compare ourselves to other people, I may not be as low as you and you may be lower than me. But the bottom line is when we compare ourselves to Jesus, we all go down, down, down. We're as low as we can go in light of his holiness. You see, our problem is we compare ourselves to the wrong standard. We look for somebody that we're slightly better than or maybe someone that we think we're a much better than. But when we compare ourselves to the risen, reigning, returning Lord in all His glory, all we can do is acknowledge our sinfulness. Now, notice the second thing that he acknowledges is he acknowledges his hopelessness. So, a truly repentant heart will not only say, I'm sinful, but I'm hopeless. Acknowledge your hopelessness. How did he fall? He fell like a dead man. That is a picture that without Christ mediating, without Christ's redemption, without his forgiveness, if we encounter Jesus for as he really is, we are what? Dead. We're dead. I fell like a dead man. So he's not like, again, he's not saying, hey, look at all that I am and look at what I can do. He's just like, I am hopeless. With depending on my own works, my own righteousness, my own goodness, my own religiosity, whatever it is, all the things that I've done for you, I am hopeless in front of you. And why is that? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is 
death. Death. Death is separation. And that's as true, that's as true for the believer as it is for the unbeliever. Sin always requires a price to be paid, a punishment to be given, and that punishment is always the same separation from God and His glory and His goodness. We'll be forever cut off from God unless God does something about our condition. But I want you to see where he falls. He falls as dead before the feet. And here's what I want you to see about those feet. Those feet are feet of judgment, but they're also feet of mercy. Why? Because Jesus took our sin. He went through the fire for us. And so uh, he's falling his feet. That's the place to fall. Look, I am sinful and I am hopeless, but I'm crying for your mercy. Because I see that you took my sin for me. I know I can come to you because your feet have been through the fire. You've bore my sin. You've done what I couldn't do. And so I fall before you. It makes me think of uh, the story is told many years ago of when a father and his daughter were walking through the grass on a Canadian prairie. And in the distance, they saw a prairie fire coming at them. This happened often both here in the States and and there in Canada in the prairie. And it would soon engulf them. And the father knew that the only way of escape, the only way, you're not going to outrun a prairie fire. They must quickly build a fire right where they are and burn a large patch of grass. So that when they had already burned, so when the flames did approach them, The girl was terrified, but the father assured her with these words, the flames can't get to us. We are standing where the fire has already been. And that's why we come to the feet of Jesus. John fell there at feet that were burning because the judgment of God cannot touch us when we cling to the one who's already received our judgment, where the fire has already been. That's just good stuff right there. That is good stuff. Now, here's the third thing. Once you recognize your sinfulness and that you're hopeless and helpless to do anything, number three, acknowledge your fearfulness. Acknowledge your fearfulness. You say, well, Chris, it doesn't say anything about fear in the passage. Well, yes, it does, because what's the first thing that Jesus says to John? Do not be afraid. Now, you don't tell someone not to be afraid if they're not Afraid and fearful, exactly. This is what we should be. Our sinfulness, a repentant heart says, look, I'm sinful, I'm hopeless, and I'm fearful. Because if you don't intervene, I'm dead. I'm forever separated. I'm forever separated. You see, Jesus could have made it otherwise. Jesus could have revealed himself in any number of ways. Jesus could have said, psst. John, I'm going to show myself to you. Brace yourself. It's going to be pretty scary. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus appears to his people and they lose it in light of his holiness. And think about who this was. This was the apostle whom Jesus loved. All right. This was the last living apostle. This was a man in his 90s. It was a senior saint. You know, sometimes we think, hey, the older you get, the more holy you get. And that's not necessarily true. The bottom line is it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter what position you have. When Jesus shows up, we should what? 
be afraid in light of who he really is. In light of who he really is. Reminds me of the little boy in a Christmas play who had one line, and it was this. It is I, be not afraid. But when he came out on the stage, all he could say was, it's me, and I'm scared. And that's the right response. You know, we don't say any, I mean, when, we, when Jesus shows up, it's like, hey, it's me, and I'm scared. Because I see you in your holiness, and I see me in my sinfulness. Wow. It reminds me of uh, uh, the classic passage in, in um, the Chronicles of Narnia where they talk about Aslan. And they say, hey, is he safe? And they say, are you kidding me? He's not safe. He's the king, but he's good. And that's what we see here in Jesus. Is he safe? Jesus isn't safe. If you have a tamed, domesticated Jesus, you don't have the real Jesus. That's not who we are to deal with. He's a king, and he's wild, and he's a lion, but he's good. Not safe, but good. Well, the risen Lord is not safe, so we should fear, but he is good. So the proper response to him is to have a repentant heart. But here's the good news. When you have a repentant heart, the second thing that you receive is a reassuring peace. A repentant heart will receive a reassuring peace from the risen Lord. This is so good. The same one who's our judge is our Savior, and that's a good thing. The sovereign judge now reaches down. And please understand, salvation is always God coming down to us, not us reaching up to God. And so he reaches down, and with his powerful right hand, He touches John and he speaks reassuring words of acceptance, forgiveness to John. And he does it personally. He does it tenderly and graciously. See, for a while there in this lesson, you might be thinking, man, I didn't know. You know, I mean, I thought Jesus was supposed to like us. I thought I thought we were on the same team. Well, yeah, again, he's not safe, but he's good. And here's his reassuring piece. So let's read verses 17 through 18. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. There's the repentant heart. And he placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Listen, listen, listen. What pronoun is repeated in those verses? I, I, I. See, we think reassurance is Jesus coming and saying, you're a good guy. You're a good girl. I really need you. Where would our kingdom be without you? Oh, I feel so accepted. No, the reassurance is this isn't about you. It's about me and who I am. Look at me in your troubles. Amen. I mean, that's powerful stuff. That's where our peace is. It's not what... I I mean, John's proven what he can do. He's exiled on an island (laughs) by the Roman emperor. His ministry is ended. His life is ending. And Jesus shows up and all he can do for Jesus is lay dead before him. And John says, that's okay. And Jesus says, that's okay because of who I am. Isn't that good? That's just good stuff. 
See, John doesn't let John, uh, Jesus doesn't, I got these J's going in my head. Jesus doesn't let John lie at his feet and grovel and beg for mercy. That's not what's happening. This is instant. Jesus shows, John responds, and Jesus immediately reassures. He doesn't say, ha ha, I'm Jesus, you're not. Grovel before my feet. It's not what's going on. There's a relation there of faith-based, grace-based relationship. And so he immediately desires for John to be reassured and comforted. And that's the same thing for you and I. Now, how can we know this for sure? Well, because Jesus does chooses to do two things that are two of the most reassuring ways to show acceptance to another person. There's at least five ways we've taught on this before, how to show acceptance. Jesus chooses two of the most powerful, which is personal touch and the spoken word. You combine those two and you really have communicated acceptance and reassurance. So let's take a look at what he does. First of all, notice meaningful touch. Number one, meaningful touch. He placed his right hand. Now, why that's why is that important? The right hand is the hand of authority, responsibility, accountability. It's where the scepter lies. But notice in Jesus's right hand, what does he hold? According to the vision, what's in his right hand? It's right there in the text, in the vision. The what? The seven stars, the seven stars. And we said, you know, the seven stars, as we see right here in verse, what is it? Verse 20, it's the angels and people say, well, is it angels or messengers? I think here we have the greatest proof of what the stars are. So the right hand, you see, it's the right hand of stars. And yet what's the first thing he touches in the right hand in this vision, in this context? He touches a church leader. And then in between, and then the next thing he says, oh, by the way, the stars are the angels to the seven churches. I think that's great proof that those stars are spiritual leaders. And so Christ takes his authority, he takes his power, and he places it on the last living apostle. And he says, you're okay, you're with me, you're with me. Isn't that good? He has him in his grip and if he has church leaders it represents as well church members who are the lampstand christ has us in his grip and that's a good thing you see jesus all throughout his earthly ministry communicated acceptance by personal touch didn't he if you were deaf what would he do stick his fingers in your ears right if you were blind, what would he do? He would touch your eyes. If you were sick, he'd lay hands on you. If you were a leper and no one would touch you, Jesus would touch you, right? And babies, there's nobody too low or insignificant. He would take him into his arms and accept them. You see, this is Jesus, all-powerful, almighty, and yet personal to those who have placed their faith, those with a repentant heart. And when he touches with that hand, that's grace in action that he's bestowing. He's reaching down and he's going to bring and stand John back up and he's going to say, I've got the greatest ministry ahead of you. You're going to record the book of Revelation. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I think of the song, Love Lifted Me. I was sinking deep in sin. 
far from the peaceful shore, very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry from the waters lifted me. Now safe am I. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, love lifted me. Man, that's powerful. Souls in danger, look above. Jesus completely saves. He will lift you by his love out of the angry waves. That's what he is doing with John. Number two, he doesn't just touch him. He gives him a spoken word. And here's what he said, saying, do not be afraid. Now, notice, we've already seen in this series the divine pattern that you must have grace before you can have peace. You must have a relationship with Christ before you can have peace with Christ. And we see the same thing. He touches, bestowing grace, and then he says, now you don't have to be afraid. It's only, listen, it's only when a repentant heart acknowledges our sinfulness, our helplessness, our fearfulness, do we receive grace and then peace with Christ. Well, let's look at this word that he gives him. He gives uh, at least, I think I have here four aspects of it. First of all, it's a redeeming word. He speaks to John a redeeming word, and it's this, I am. I am. John loves revealing Christ as the great I am. I am. Remember in John, the gospel, he has seven I ams. Seven I ams. So this is a redeeming word. I am who I am. Before you go any farther with this, just realize he's saying to him, look, I'm the king of the universe. There was a doctor at a mental institution who was making his rounds one evening when he heard shouting from one of the cells, I am the king of the universe. I am the ruler of the world. From now on, everyone will do what I say because I am the supreme commander of the galaxies. And the doctor investigated and opened a door to find a man in his skivvies standing in a chair and beating his chest and yelling, I am the king of the universe. Harry interrupted the doctor over the man shouting, Harry, Get down off that chair. Quiet down. You're disrupting people who are trying to sleep. I am the king of the universe. Harry, you're not the king of the universe. Yes, I am. He cried all the louder. And just what makes you think you are the king of the universe? Asked the doctor. God told me I was the king of the universe, shouted Harry. And then a voice erupted from another cell down the hallway and said, I did not. I did not. You see, we all, that's who we think we are. And John and we here this morning need to remember whatever persecution, whatever, whatever opposition, whatever trial you're facing. And please understand, Jesus is trying to communicate one simple thing. I'm God. You're not. But I've got you. I'm God. You're not. And I've got you. And the good news is, number two, that's a final word. It's not just a redeeming word. 
It's a final word. I am what? I am the first and the last, period. His redeeming word is a final word. I am before everyone else and I'll be around longer than anyone else. Mine is the first word. Mine is the last word on all things. What are you struggling with this morning? Whatever it is, Jesus' word on it is the first thing and it's the last thing on it. Yeah, but I've got to deal. These people are saying this over here and I'm fearful they're saying this about me and I can't stop them talking. That's okay because who gets the last word? Jesus gets the last word. And listen, whatever his word is the only thing that matters. God said it. That settles it. He'll do it. I believe it. And we should respond accordingly. Number three, it's a living word. I'm not only the first and the last. Jesus says, I am the living one, the one and only. I am the living one. He's the source of life. He's the one and only true God. Listen, he's basically saying this. At one point, I died, but now I'm alive forevermore. People say God is dead. They only, they're only partially right. God did die, but he rose again from the dead. And if you have loved ones that have died and they died in Christ, then be assured they live too because he lives. He lives. Now, that's a word of reassuring peace. And thirdly, or fourthly, it's a powerful word. It's a powerful word. So it's a redeeming word, a final word, a living word, and it's a powerful word. I own the keys of Hades and death. Look at verse 18. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And because of that, I have the keys of death and Hades. Think of Hades as a place of separation, a real place of separation. And think of death as a state of separation. That's the idea. And Jesus owns the keys to both. He can let out anyone he wants to let out, and he can keep in anyone he chooses to keep in. And if you have any hope of escaping death and hell, there's only one person that you have to deal with, the one that owns the keys. Now, have you ever been locked into anything, a room, and you couldn't get out? How many of you have ever been locked in a room and you couldn't get out? No one? Literally? Okay, yes, thank you. Okay. You can relate. We, I, I, the day of our wedding up in Ohio, we were in the church, and Ed Scares, who was performing the wedding, we were in a side room, like all churches, like ours, used to have, they have these side rooms, and we were supposed to wait in there. And so we're waiting in there, and my buddy from seminary, who was my best man, he was playing the guitar right out the door, and he's doing the kind of the pre-music, and all of a sudden, we try the door, and it's locked. We cannot get out of the door. And I mean, you know, and Ed, you know, he'd been around the block a few times. He'd been, nah, no big deal. I'm like, I got to get out of here. I got to get out of here. I want to get married today. This is my one chance. I've got to go for it. Uh, and so we had to like, Tom, we had to bang on the door a little bit. And Tom, open this door. It's locked from the inside. Anyway, the good news is we got out. But Jesus has a bigger 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 way of letting us free we just need to think about that he owns the keys he owns the keys number three we see here not only a repentant heart 
we see not only a reassuring peace, but we see a restored ministry. A restored ministry. You see, this is the pattern. This is the pattern. We see God in His holiness. We see ourselves in our sinfulness and we repent. And by faith through grace, by grace through faith alone in Christ, He reaches down and gives forgiveness and restoration and reassuring peace. And then He commissions us for ministry. Look at verse 19. Therefore, write the things which you have seen the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Now, you got to understand, this guy's on an island. He thought his ministry was over. He thought he was locked down, shut down, and life was over, and he was going to end it in exile. And Jesus says, no, I've got more for you to do. Because guess what? I'm bigger than Domitian, the emperor. I can get you off this island. I have more ministry. And sure enough, John, Domitian dies. Domitian, the emperor, dies, and the next emperor frees, you know, because, you know, hey, if if the previous guy didn't like you, well, I'm the new guy in town. I want you to be loyal to me, so I'm going to set you free. And so John gets set free, and he lives to a ripe, he continues to minister in Ephesus, and he brings the message of revelation. Wow. Now, look at that division. Things is mentioned three times. Write the things which you have seen, the past, the things which are, the present, and the things which will take place. This is a threefold structure and outline of the book of Revelation. Therefore, write these things. The things which you have seen, you see, is Revelation 1, the vision of uh, of the risen Christ, the coming sovereign judge. That's what we studied in this series. The things which are are going to be chapters 2 and 3 that cover the church age from the time of John till the second coming and the uh, the coming tribulation, the day of the Lord, which includes the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. The things which are, are going to be chapters 4 through 22, covering the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, the thousand-year millennial kingdom, and the eternal new creation. All that is in chapters 4 through 22. So you're all set up to study the book of Revelation. And it all begins with who? Jesus Christ, because he's the first and the last. He's the living one. Now, let me tell you, here's our ministry. You say, well, what's my re- I'm not supposed to, uh, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Well, we are to share the message of Revelation wherever we're at. So let me give you the threefold message that we're to share with others. First of all, the things past, chapter 1. We should be sharing with people, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Jesus is Lord. You know, people might be asked, what do you think about this latest crisis? What do you think about this hurricane? What do you think about this war that might break out? You know what we ought to say? Revelation 1, Jesus is Lord. Amen? Maybe you have a personal crisis. What should you be thinking about your personal crisis right now? Family, financial, work, spiritual, relational, Jesus is Lord. Everything in chapter 1 will be true in any crisis we face. The things present. Here's what we should be saying from chapters 2 through 3. Overcome till he comes. Overcome till he comes. What do you, if someone comes to you and says, what are you going to do in this, this coming crisis? I'm going to overcome. Till Jesus comes. 
Because more important than the, this crisis is the second coming. All right? So I'm going to overcome till he comes. Number three, the thanks future. We should tell people the king is coming. The king is coming. Well, is there anything worse than what I'm going through right now? Yes, the king is coming and he holds the keys to heaven or to, to actually access to heaven and, and to hell. Do you see what I'm trying to say here? This book is not just to tickle our curiosity about the Antichrist. It's to help you and I get through whatever we're going through right now and will go through that we don't know yet. And we have a message. Jesus is Lord, therefore I can overcome till He comes. And the King is coming, and I'm on the winning side. And then number four, a renewed passion. This all comes down to this. A renewed passion. A renewed passion. Look at verse 20. Verse 20 is weird. Because like you're going through this, and Jesus is saying, okay, write all these things. Then all of a sudden, verse 20... By the way, I bet you were wondering what those stars and lampstands were. Let me tell you. you know, and then he starts writing to the church. It's kind of weird. So what, what's the idea? As for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand. By the way, John, that right hand that touched you. And the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. What's he telling us? First of all, it's a reminder that this past vision of who I am that happened over 2,000 years ago has present application for every church leader, every church member, every church in every age. Please remember this. Revelation 1 is a timeless message for his church. Overcome till he comes. And it's a transition into the next two chapters. And so what I gave you is, you think about the seven churches. As you read chapters 2 through 3 of the seven churches, there's a sevenfold, because everything in Revelation is seven, there's seven ways that Christ addresses. And He addresses first the city church, which represents every church, including ours. And He says, write to them, because Scripture alone is what the church needs. All right? And then he gives the character of Christ. These things says he who in some aspect of this vision in chapter 1 is applied to that church. Why? Because whatever the church needs is Christ alone. Christ alone. Some aspect of Christ will meet the needs of us as a church. Third thing is a commendation of good works. He says, I know your works. And the works that Christ commends is always by faith Alone, faith alone produces the works that Christ commends. And then number four, there's a commendation, a condemnation rather, a condemnation or a correction of evil works. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Because listen, when we go by our own wisdom, when we go by our own resources and try to fix things in our lives or in our church, that's, it's always going to fall short of Christ's standard. And so then number five comes the correction of Christ. I will come to you. That is before the second coming. I'm going to come to you to rebuke or reward you. 
And then number six, the challenge of the Spirit is given to each of the churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Because ultimately it's by grace alone that we can hear what God says to us. It's only by God's grace of the Spirit working in our spirit. And then finally, the confirmation of the conquerors to him who overcomes. I will give. And every aspect of what he's going to give comes from some aspect of chapters 21 through 22. It's something of the future glory because it's all for God's glory alone. Now, I just gave you the intro to next week's series. Because it's scripture alone, by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone, for God's glory alone. It's all right here in Revelation 1, and it was recaptured in the Reformation, and we're going to study that. Because really, it's an application of Revelation chapter 1. And so, let me end with this, with the few minutes that we have. There's your spiritual prepper checklist. Hey, prepare for the next coming physical crisis any way you want. Just make a little room in your basement for the Regus family. Because I don't have much to... I'll be the chaplain in your crisis, okay? That's about all I got to offer. Although my daughter, having survived what she survived this last week, she, she may have more survival skills than Gwen and I. But here's the reality. You need a spiritual checklist. And so look at these seven things that we've looked at and ask yourself, where am I weak? Where do I, where do I need to prep? Because listen, it's only when we see Jesus for who he really is that we see ourselves for who we are and we prepare for his coming the way we ought to. And that's with a renewed passion. Amen? We need revival. This country needs it. Our churches in our country need it. We need it. We need revival and we need reformation and we need an ongoing repentance. And that's what we're going to look at in the upcoming series. But listen, this prepares our hearts right here, right now. So let's pray. Oh, Father, I, I, I need a fresh vision of... Jesus as he really is. I need to get my eyes off of what is discouraging, what is defeating, what makes me anxious and worried, and I need to get my eyes on you because you are the great I am. You're the first, you're the last, you're the living. You died and you overcame our greatest enemies. Lord, I pray that every person here will have a fresh view, a fresh perception of who you really are. And that, Lord, that will prepare us and renew our passion. I pray for those that are struggling, that are facing difficulty. There's big question marks. There's scary things that, are, that seem to overwhelm. And I just pray that you will rise up, reach down and touch and speak to them through your word. And I pray that we will have ears to hear what your spirit is saying to the churches, including LifeBridge. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.